disobedience. It is a cry to war. It is so many things. And I pray that that is what is going to happen this morning. Well, if you're visiting today again, and if you missed the announcements, uh, Nick, our normal preaching pastor, along with the elders, are away at Seaside, Oregon. Again, for sake of recording and all that stuff, they are at a NAB, North American Baptist Conference, and they're joining up with pastors from 30 different churches in four different states uh, to worship God together, to encourage one another with testimonies of what's going on in their own churches and in their own cities, uh, and to figure out how to team up with each other to um, advance the mission in the Northwest. Um, So as we pray this morning, I want to devote special time to pray again for our elders. Um, Did you know that October is, is it Clergy Appreciation Month? It is. So make sure that before we hit next week, (laughs) give Nick a call, thank him. Uh, It's great that we have him with us. Um, But when Nick approached me to preach this morning, he gave me the task of bringing our series in the book of Titus to a close. So if you would turn to Titus, that's what we're going to be doing this morning, kind of getting one last overhead view of Titus as a whole before, I think, we go back to um, Luke uh, and our series there. Um, But before we do that, I think that we should take one more time to pray. God, we thank you for your promise that you are with us. We thank you for your spirit that you have promised us that you are working in us. And God, we pray that you would give us the grace and the zeal and the strength that you would work through us um, to those who do not yet know you. God, we pray for this uh, congregation. We pray for the people here, that in our gathering, God, you would meet them where they're at, that, God, they would not be uh, tempted to simply uh, push whatever struggles or problems they have under the rug, but give them to you. And God, we pray that you would continue to change us, to mold us to your image. God, I pray that this morning you would give us a fresh glimpse of your grace your grace that was shown on the cross, that we would be saved, and not only saved, but changed. God, we thank you for this grace, and we God, we ask that in this moment, when we look at your word, that you would use this moment as a special time to pour forth grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you were to picture the book of Titus this morning with us, uh, one picture that I would like to suggest is a wheel. Um, There is a wheel of Titus, and at the center, there is one hub that makes the wheel work, and that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Instead of trying to go through the entire book one more time, we are going to dig into Titus and figure out what is it that makes Titus work. Uh, What is it that spins the wheel? Um, So I thought that chapter 2 would be the place we'd be focusing most. We have already gone through it, but I want to spend one more time there and see how that affects the entirety of that book and also how it affects our lives. So let's go to Titus chapter 2, and I'll read verses 1 through 10. 1 through 10 of Titus 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine... Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. 
Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So that seems pretty straightforward, right? I mean, it's not really confusing or difficult to understand at all. None of these things are, I guess, would we say, theologically deep. And yet, Titus and the soon-to-be elders of the church in Crete face a couple of really big issues as they prepare to teach this uh, to the people in their congregation. Uh, And we see both of these problems in chapter 1. The first one is a cultural issue. Uh, The people in Crete, when we read in general, Uh, In chapter 1, the people of Crete pride themselves as being lazy, lazy, lazy. A combination of lying and lazy, lazy, (laughs) copyrighted my quest. Uh, They are lazy, evil, gluttonous beasts, and they pride themselves on that. He says, a prophet of their own says all these things, and this testimony is true. Okay, well that's an issue, isn't it? I mean, Titus is not positioned in a nice, safe, middle-class, family-friendly neighborhood. He's situated in the middle of evil, lazy, gluttonous beasts. So he's not addressing a group of reasonable or maybe even moral people. But the rough culture of Crete is not the only problem that they face. They also face a doctrinal problem. In chapter 1, again, we read that there are some people who are deceiving others with false doctrines. That's an issue. This group of people is known as the Circumcision Party, and they were a plague on the church wherever it was. It wasn't located just in Crete. Uh, Paul combated these people everywhere. And in Galatians, we read that these people were so intimidating that they made Peter fear and compromise the gospel. So if someone can make Peter compromise the gospel and be fearful of them, you can bet they're pretty intimidating. Peter is the courageous guy, right? He's the guy who always sticks his foot in his mouth. and yeah. So, if, so these guys are not just a, a minor thing. They are a very big and intimidating factor uh, that are going into the church of Crete. So in the midst of combating this intimidating doctrinal error, in the midst of this culture of hedonistic, lazy people, uh, Paul says, Titus, this is what you teach. Oh, Well, it doesn't seem so straightforward now, does it? Imagine, if you will, maybe you were positioned in a church in the middle of a rough city, abandoned Detroit. You're you're right in there. You are in the center of a place where police fear to go. People pride themselves as being X, Y, and Z. This is the culture that you're surrounded by. Okay, I can see how that would be difficult for a church. Uh, what, what else is there? Well, amongst the people that do come into your church, some of them are sober, some of them aren't, but the sober ones are especially 
uh, excited about a false doctrine, and they're trying to convince everyone of it. Uh, well, that's, a, that's an issue, too. And you can look at this situation in Crete or our hypothetical situation in abandoned Detroit or whatever rough neighborhood you can think of, and we say, well, church is done for. Uh, give them a couple weeks, maybe a few months, a year at best, and then they are going to pack up their bags and head out of town. So, so, so we look at this very difficult situation and we say, okay, men who are lisey, be sober-minded, have self-control. Women, be submissive to your husbands. Well, that, that's a bit more difficult to preach, isn't it? That is a bit more difficult to preach. Maybe, maybe, maybe this would be easier if Titus was in a position like where we are at, right? I think it would be easier. I mean, we don't pride ourselves as being evil, gluttonous, lisey people, do we? No. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that we don't have a group of people actively trying to convince everyone else of a false gospel, right? So really, Titus should just come here. Because we got it down. Why are you laughing? So maybe not. Maybe we don't have it down either. Maybe the issue at hand is not just the circumstances and everything that Titus finds himself in. It's our sinful natures, which stretches across the board, whether you're in a rough neighborhood or a good neighborhood or a moral neighborhood or an immoral neighborhood. The issue is a sinful nature. Nick preached on these these lists a couple weeks ago, and I wish that I had one of those little devices that, you know, the lie detector thing with a needle, and it just freaks out when you're lying or whatever. And, and I wish we could kind of hook it up to our collective brains and see what would happen when he read things like, women, be submissive to your husbands. <laughs> Men, be above reproach. <laughs> Do not be quick-tempered. <laughs> Do not be greedy. <laughs> be a lover of good. Be hospitable. <laughs> the machine blows up. And we read about the things in chapter 3. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. That 35 mile per hour speed limit that's everywhere in Washington. Ooh. Speak evil of no one. And here's a good one. Show perfect courtesy to all people. What? So if you say these things are easy or even natural to, to you, chances are you're a liar. Um... So we, in fact, do share a bit of Titus's problem. We're confronted not only with the sin in the world, but the sin in ourselves. And the difficulties Titus faced are the difficulties that we face. So if Paul is writing these commands, he thinks they're possible, right? He wouldn't just write these things to say, well, these are the things we're supposed to do, but uh, whatever, just make it work. He doesn't do that. He writes these because he expects us to do them. They aren't there as a suggestion. They aren't there just to add more letters to the Bible. They're there because he expects us to do them. Well, Paul, how on earth can you look at the situation in Crete and expect this to happen? And maybe in our own lives, Paul, how can you look at me and expect this to happen? I don't get it. I look at this list, and I think many of us would look at lists like these that are found throughout Scripture, and our first, um, our first reaction is to just say, well, I'm, no one's perfect. I mean, you know, I, I can't do all of this. There's no way. 
Well, the list is there. You've got you to reconcile with that somehow. So, how are these things possible? What, what foundational element can we find that makes these things a reality? And Paul gives us the answer. That's an answer that he refers to back time and time again in this letter and also in the rest of his writings. So that's an answer that we can and must apply to us regardless of context or situation or whatever. And it's the entire second half of chapter 2. That's his answer. So let's read that. Chapter 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous... For good works. And that's the answer right there. Amen. Let's go. Maybe we'll unpack it. Okay. We'll go a little bit longer here. Don't want Nick to get mad at me. So, the first point that I want to make is there are two things that Paul is definitely not saying. There are many things he's not saying, but I want to point out two here. These are things that refer to good works that we can kind of believe, not necessarily in theory, but definitely in practice. The first thing is, Paul is not taking this list and then saying, okay, Titus, teach these people these things, and if you teach it right, they'll do it. He's not saying that. He's not saying, here's the list, and if you fail to teach these things, it's not going to happen. A church's fruitfulness is not the direct result of a pastor's preaching or teaching ability. Thank God. (laughs) I don't have to sweat anymore. When churches flourish, it's easy for people to go to the leaders of that church and say, what are you doing? What, What programs are you doing? How do you get people involved? How do you get people to do this? What do you do so we can copy you? Conversely, if a church is struggling or failing in some respect, people will say, well, we just need a new pastor. That'll fix everything. No, that's not the case. The church's fruitfulness is not the direct result of a pastor's preaching or teaching ability. Could you imagine the tremendous amount of pressure that would put on pastors if this were biblically true? If, hey, it all depends on you, so don't mess it up. And we, in theory, don't believe this, but when we consider sharing the gospel with one another, when we consider sharing the gospel with those who don't believe, oftentimes we're extremely nervous. Why? because we think it hangs on us. And that's not what Paul is saying here. The second thing he's not saying, Titus, I know you're in a rough spot, but go ahead and teach these things, and I'm sure that they can all do it if they try hard enough. Just crack the whip, man. If they try hard enough, it'll happen. And this is something that we often prescribe to ourselves. We look at this list and say, well, I'm not doing it. I'm obviously not trying hard enough. And if I'm struggling with any of these things, you know, I just need more effort. This is legalistic. And it will leave Christians with a crippling sense of ultimate inadequacy at best. And at worst, it'll lead Christians down the road to believe that their salvation is entirely dependent on their work. Which is not what Paul is saying. So what does Paul say? He says, Titus, I see your situation. These are the things you are to teach. 
And you must teach these things. And Titus, your congregation will do them. Indeed, they will be zealous to do them because the grace of God has appeared. The foundation that Paul gives to stir up zeal for good works is the grace of God. And this grace is not like an abstract thing. It's not this little box that he hands you and it's overflowing with this gooey grace stuff that you just like spread on the walls of the church and then... That's, that's not the grace he's talking about. He actually per- personifies this grace. This grace is a person. It brings salvation. It trains us. We looked at this last time we were over this, that this grace Paul is referring to is Jesus. The person and work of Jesus. So at the center of chapter 2, we have this hub on which the whole wheel of Titus works. It is God's grace. And I want to take a little bit of a moment to look at some spokes that are coming out. You can, the note section is completely blank for you. Feel free to draw a wheel, label it Titus. In the center of this wheel is grace. And then there are four spokes coming out of it that help make this wheel of Titus turn. I wish I drew it in there and gave it to you in advance, but it didn't happen. So let's look at these spokes that branch out of good of God's grace that make this wheel turn. First, we are saved for good works by God's grace. I think that's up there, right? Yes. We are saved for good works by God's grace. Verse 11 reads, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And this little word at the beginning, for, it could be translated because. But the thing is, it connects 11 to 10. So, Teach all of these things because the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation to all people, but what end? What end has this salvation come? Well, if you read three verses down to verse 14, we see the end of this salvation. We were redeemed to be a people for his own possession who are... Who said that? Oh, man, Brian gets a star. Who are zealous for good works. That is the end. We are saved for good works. Not saved by works, but we are definitely saved for works. One familiar passage for us might be Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Some of you might have it memorized. It's, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may, may boast. And we like to stop there, right? But it goes on. Who knows the rest? Who knows the rest? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is writing this letter to the elect. In Ephesians, we also read, we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Well, it's not just we were chosen, but the works that we have to do were chosen before the foundation of the world. But this saving act of God does not simply move us from one kingdom to another. It transforms us. And Paul writes about this transformation in chapter 3 of Titus. In verses 1 and 2, he writes out a list again. Seems a bit familiar to chapter 2. He writes out this list, similar to the one in chapter 2, and then he points to our salvation as the foundation of doing them. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, etc., but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. 
So he's laying out this list, and he's saying, what makes it possible is God saved us. So believers, the reason you can do these things, the reason we must pursue them, is that the you that would have bristled and cringed against these things and the you that would have flagrantly disobeyed all these things is gone. You can only refer to that you in the past tense. He says, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, but now we are saved. So, if you are here, you are saved, I want you to enter into a time of confession. Doesn't that sound liturgical? I want you to enter into a time of confession with me. We've looked at this, how we are saved by grace for good works. I want you to repeat after me. By grace, I am saved for good works. Okay, and this isn't just a repetition practice. I want you to mean it. So that's the first spoke on this hub of God's grace. We are saved by God's grace for good works. Second, we are fit for good works by God's grace. We are fit. Back in the hub of grace in chapter 2, we read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Here we read that the grace that saves us is also the grace that transforms us. It's the grace that trains us. So, Titus, you are a bit intimidated by the prospect of training people to do all the things that I wrote earlier. Good. Because ultimately, you will not be the one to train them. Grace is. That relieves a good burden, doesn't it? When it comes to being fit for good works, though, I think we can buy into a lie. We can look at this list, and instead of immediately seeking the help of the Spirit of God to do these things in us and through us, we look at ourselves apart from him and say, oh, I could never do all that. Mm-mm, not me. I'm, I'm, I'm just not good enough. I'm just not strong enough. I don't have all my stuff together. I'm unfit to do these things. Maybe I'll attempt them when I get my act together, but Paul, I'm just unfit for this. And Paul addresses something like this in chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. Chapter 1, 15 through 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciousness are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So the only people that Paul is referring to as unfit for good work are unbelievers. The only people who are unfit for this good work that he's laying before us are unbelievers. Therefore, as a believer, you cannot say, I am unfit. There is no way that you can say that as a believer. If Titus 2.14 is true for you, that God saved you to purify for himself people of his own possession, then you can be confident that you are indeed fit for good works, no matter how daunting they seem. Those who have been saved by grace for good works are by that same grace trained and made fit for good works. I want you to repeat after me. By grace, I am saved for good works. By grace... I am fit for good works. 
So that first one is really easy to say, right? I'm saved by, for good works. I'm saved by grace, right? The second one, maybe you're feeling a little bit shaky on. By grace, I am fit for good works. It's true. It's true. Now, the third spoke in the wheel, we are hopeful in good works by grace. There are three specific times that hope is mentioned in Paul's letter to Titus, and they all refer to the same thing. And one of those times is here, in this central hub of Titus that makes the whole wheel spin. We read that the grace of God brought salvation, spoke number one, is training us, spoke number two, and third is helping us wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the very reason that Paul can write the things that he writes to Titus is because of hope in the grace of God. He's looking at a very bleak situation, and he's not hoping in the circumstances to change. He's not hoping for the Cretans to suddenly declare themselves reasonable and sociable and morally refined people. He's not waiting for the people who are spreading around this false doctrine to pack up and go. That's not his hope. His hope is in the grace of God. And he says as much in the beginning of this book, in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, I'm writing in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And in chapter 3, verse 7, he writes that we have been justified by his grace might become heirs according to the hope. Of eternal life. I think often we need to take a step back and ask ourselves, where's my hope? Where is my hope? How often do we approach a difficult person or a difficult situation and shrink away from it because in our minds we've declared it hopeless? What unbelieving family member or friend or neighbor have you just stopped trying with? They're hopeless. I've, I've tried time and time again. I've been trying for months, years to get across to this person. They're hopeless. Where is your hope? What good works have you not bothered with simply because you've declared the whole thing hopeless? What personal sins have you given up on because you've declared yourself hopeless? Yeah, Scripture time and time says, you know, we are not to be quick-tempered. We're to be self-controlled. But you know what? Like when, it, when it happens, when, when the bomb drops, I just lose it time and time and time and time again. I'm hopeless in that. Maybe I'll do something else. Maybe I'll look at, uh, don't lie. I'm a pretty honest person. Yeah, I'll work on that one. The point that hit, this is the point that hit home especially hard for me. At a small group gathering I was a part of once, I confessed to them that I have let a cynical and pessimistic spirit rule my life. Um, It started out as just a little thing, like, oh, this is wrong with the church. Oh, this is wrong with the church. The church in America really needs to work on this. The church in America really needs to work on this. And it was just unchecked. Yes, it's great to realize that there are problems, but if you keep looking at everything like this without any hope, you'll declare it all hopeless. How unscriptural how false it is for me to look at a church or a believer and say, hopeless. So this might be a good time for you to check yourself. Where is your hope? Do you often look at the hope that is in Scripture? 
that is given to us and promised to us. In chapter 1, Paul opens that he is writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Well, who are the elect? Beats me. Because God's the one who does the electing. Everywhere you go, family, friends, neighbors, church, there are elect. You don't know it yet, but there is a hope that those who are elect will come to faith and will share in the hope that you have. That is a hopeful situation. So this is not a hope that the Cretans will suddenly shape up. This isn't a hope that the circumcision party will leave. This is a hope that God will save those he will save, transform those he will transform, and bring them all to see his face in unending, perfect relationship at the end. And it's a hope that we need to place before ourselves if we intend to do good works by God's grace. We are doing good works because we are hopeful in God's grace. So, repeat after me. By grace, I am saved for good works. By grace, I am fit for good works. And by grace, I can be hopeful as I do good works. There you go. Do you believe that? Last point, final spoke in this wheel of grace. We are zealous for good works by God's grace. This is a really good one. We are zealous for good works by God's grace. When I was young, I equated good works with chores. I did not look at good works as something to be zealous about. You know, maybe I could do good works if they fit my schedule. Maybe I could do works if I feel like it. Maybe I could do the good works after, you know, during this next commercial break. I I can do good works then. But God did not save us for that type of mindset concerning good works. He saved us, Titus 2, 14, back in this hub of grace, to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. And there is a certain zeal for good works that we as believers ought to have. An eagerness, a devotion. That's other ways you can translate that word. An eager devotion. Regardless of whether or not you are in a tough neighborhood, regardless of whether or not you have a busy schedule, regardless of whether or not you are feeling certain or uncertain, this zeal can be described as a fiery devotion for what God has put before us. So zeal is not a circum. A circumstance thing. Like, if the circumstances are good, zeal. That's not what it is. It's also not a feeling thing. Certainly, eagerness and zealousness are emotional, but it's not just that. Perhaps you're in a predicament that I've often found myself. Perhaps you do not quite feel a fiery passion for good works this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you cannot say that you are particular particularly zealous for good works at all. You do them, but there's no zeal. What do you do? How can you stir up this zeal in your own heart? So here are two things I can tell you right now that are useless, and I know because I've tried them. Number one, you could simply put good works on hold until you feel particularly zealous for them. No. This is entirely irresponsible and disobedient at heart. Never once is a command of God followed by the words, if you feel like it. (laughs) 
And this is a hard one for me because if, if I am not emotionally invested in something, I don't particularly want to do it. But God does not say, okay, love your neighbor as yourself if you feel like it. <laughs> Women, be submissive to your husband, self-controlled, kind, loving your children if you feel like it. Men, be self-controlled, the lover of good, hospitable, not quick-tempered, but only if you feel like it. That's not what he says. So we can't just put these things on hold until we feel zealous for it, because what that does is it relies on your emotions and feelings to do good works rather than the grace of God. It makes these emotions and feelings your God, essentially. I cannot do good works unless I feel like it. That is false. Second thing you could do, which is just as unhelpful, is play copycat. This is what I've done. Uh, When I worked at Panera, uh, I was not good at all with the customer service. There's a fly in my soup. Uh, There's a hair in my soup. My kids are throwing mac and cheese all over the booth. I was not really good at the whole customer service thing. So to make my job go better, to be in a better light with other people, I would simply think of people in my head who were particularly customer service friendly and say, okay, I'll just be them for now. Uh, Steph Jackson, Nick Jackson, they're two bubbly people. They're really energetic and they're so extroverted and they're like, hey, how are you? How are you doing today? Can I take your kids? Come over to our house, eat dinner. So okay, well, what I'll do is I'll just be them for a while, and eventually it'll work for me, right? Wrong. This zeal is not something that you can play copycat with. And, and, you know, maybe I'm the only person in the room who goes through this, but, I mean, when you think of zeal, what do you think of? Oftentimes you think of very enthusiastic people, very energetic people, and you look around and you're like, why do I not feel that? Should I just copy them for a while and pretend to be them and maybe it'll work? No. The only thing that'll do is make you feel ingenuine and hollow. You just say, I'm pretending to be zealous, but it's not really there. It won't work for you. That's because zeal is not a personality thing. It's a grace thing. Extroverted people can be zealous. Introverted people can be zealous for good works. It's not a personality thing. It's a grace thing. If grace is in your life, you can be zealous. Every believer can be zealous. And every believer must be and will be zealous because that's how he saved us. He saved us so that we would be a possession for his people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. There's no exemption there. So if these two ways to become zealous for good works are unhelpful, even sinful, what do we do to stir up the zeal in our hearts? We can do these things by God's grace. What about zeal? We'll look briefly at chapter 3, verse 8. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul just came off of a reiteration of the gospel of grace. And then in verse 8, he writes, This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, these things being the entire gospel that precedes this verse, so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This word devote is also translated as zeal, so that they may be eager to do good works. So, Titus, I want you to insist on these things so that believers can have zeal. 
the same question of can I do this? By grace. Can I do this zealously? By grace. It answers both questions. So let's go through these other three spokes and see how they make us zealous for good works. We are saved for good works by God's grace. When you enter into a place or moment when works are demanded of you, hard works but good works, instead of saying, well, I'll do this by grace, I guess, or uttering this little, oh, God, please help me do this, maybe it would help your zeal if you said, this is what I was saved for, right here. Parents, if you're not feeling particularly loving towards your kids, they just drew on the wall again, This is what I was saved for. I was saved to show the love of God, the love of the Father, in my role as Father to them. This is what I was saved for. When someone cuts you off in traffic, or a co-worker disrespects you, this is what I was saved for, right here, that I could demonstrate the love that Jesus had for me even when I sinned against him, when I cut him off, when I disrespected him. This is what I was saved for, to, to display the grace and mercy and forgiveness that Jesus has displayed to me. The list could go on and on. So instead of, okay, buckle down, let's do good works, let's do good works, approach the situation and say, this is what I was saved for. This is what I was saved for. We are fit for good works by God's grace. When we remind ourselves about God's grace, we can confidently pursue good works. We don't need a person who got a degree in theology to reach our friends and family and neighbors for us. We have the grace of God. In fact, by grace, we have also been given the Spirit of God. So, if the grace of God and the Spirit of God have not made you fit for good works, you're never going to be fit for good works. There is nothing else you can rely on to be fit for good works. It is the grace of God and the Spirit of God. Okay, it isn't, a, okay, I just need to get a degree in this, and then I'll be fit. It's, okay, I need to take a short-term mission trip, and then I'll be fit for evangelism. I need to get a five-step process to walk all my unbelieving neighbors through, and then I'll be fit. No, we are fit by God's grace, and that ought to make us zealous for good works. We have everything we need. We are hopeful for good works by God's grace. When we consider the end that is promised to us, that we will see Jesus, that we will be like Jesus, that pain and death will be no more, it is hard to restrain a sense of confidence or zeal. I look at the Lord of the Rings second movie, Two Towers, I think, and uh, the whole battle's going on, the, the orcs, the bad guys are about to swarm the castle, and then from the top of the hill, Gandalf the White shows up with his big sword and staff, and the sun's going up, and the music's going, and then he just charges down, and you know it's game over for them. You know it's game over. They're just charging down this horde of horses, just like pouring down a mountainside, obliterating everything in its path. You can't really restrain a sense of confidence that, yeah, this is going to work. And Jesus has looked upon the battlefield of our lives and has declared victory over those things. How can we not be zealous for that victory? We are hopeful for good works by God's grace, and that hope that is promised us ought to give us zeal. So by God's grace, we are saved for good good works, fit for good works, hopeful in good works, and zealous for good works. His grace is the center of our works from beginning to end. Amen. So 
I want you to repeat these after me. By grace, I am saved for good works. By grace, I am fit for good works. By grace, I can be hopeful as I do good works. And by grace, I will be zealous for good works. That's the center of Titus. This grace that does all these things makes the entire book turn. As we close, I thought of a couple of specific points of application that fall for us under one sentence. Pursue this grace. Pursue it. Remind yourself of it. Remind each other of it. We have received the grace. It's not that we have to plea for God to give us some more grace and... uh, if you, he won't give it to you unless you plead for it. That's not what I'm saying. He ha, we have received grace from God in the person of Jesus, and in this room now, we are receiving his grace by his spirit working in us through his word. However, while the grace is constantly flowing to us like a waterfall, there are things we can do to posture ourselves to be more consistently exposed to God's grace, to be more receptive of it in our lives, and I want to listen, list the two things that are most obvious that will help us do this. This grace saved us. This grace made us fit. This grace gives us hope. This grace makes us zealous. I want more of this so that I can do the good works that were laid out before me. How? If you want to pursue the grace of God, pursue the people of God. God's grace is at work in his church in the lives of every single believer in this room. When we hear about that, it's grace for us. When we share that, it's grace for us. When I was a student at Moody Bible Institute, I did my best to go through it completely alone. I was a recluse. I, I did not care for community. And that was pretty much a good, a good way to sum up my entire life up till then. Like, I got this. I'll do it alone. Like, lone wolf, like, gunslinger, like, me and God. We got this. But it was towards my last year that I was brought through several intense moments when God made it very clear that he uses other people to speak his truth to me. Truth that by myself I might ignore or sweep under the rug. But when it's told to me by someone else, I I find it much more difficult to argue with. So this community, this congregation is a means of grace. And the grace of God is at work most visually when we are bound together by Jesus and learn to love each other by grace and do good works that he's called us to do by grace. And beside my own experience, I've heard countless testimonies of people who they come to a small group and they're just like dragging their feet and they're like, oh, I need extra time to do the stuff at work, at home. I need the stuff. I, I just need sleep. I, I didn't really want to come here. But at the end, usually they're like, hey, I didn't want to come here, but right now I'm really glad I did. This is exactly what I needed. And what that is is not God rewarding you for dragging yourself out of your bed. It's God's grace pulling you to hear what you need to hear. So pursue the people of God, small groups, your neighbors, your friends, this church, pursue their stories, listen to the grace of God in their lives, be encouraged by it, mold and shape and slam against each other to be refined into the image of God more. Second, if you want to pursue the grace of God, pursue the word of God. 
really obvious, but it needs to be said. There is a reason that Paul includes the phrase grace and peace to you in his letters. It's because, I mean, this isn't a Christianese nicety. He's not saying, dear church, grace and peace. He's not saying, I love you, grace and peace. This is a, there's a reason he's writing this. It's his desire for God to graciously work through what he is writing to you. His writing is a means for grace. As you read this, grace to you. So if we thirst for grace that transforms us and empowers us and makes us zealous for good works, Scripture is the most clear and visible way we can expose ourselves to that grace, that voice of God speaking truth into our lives. So pursue the word of God. If you pursue God, pursue his grace, you need to pursue the people of God, you need to pursue the word of God. And in that, you'll be more and more exposed to his grace. You'll be more and more zealous for these good works that he's called us to. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the work that you've done, uh, even as we've listened to your word. And God, listen to your spirit. I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for the grace that challenges us, the grace that changes us, the grace that transforms us. And God, the truth that your grace is bound up in Jesus. God, you you displayed your grace to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is the complete manifestation of your grace. So God, I pray that you would help us look to him, look to your gospel of who you are, what you've done because of who you are, and who that makes us. God, I pray that your spirit would continue to work in us, continue to pour out your grace so abundantly on us, that, God, we can overcome our challenges of circumstance, our challenges of doctrinal issues, our challenges of personality, and whatever else, God, and be zealous by your grace for the good works that you've called us to. God, I pray that um, as we go out and as we do these good works, that people would see them and give glory to you because that's where the glory belongs. God, I pray that this has been a moment where people can get a fresh glimpse of your grace and how integral it is in the life of every believer. Help us cling to that grace. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.